back everyone. It's the new year, or at least a good start into the new year, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we challenge each other to stretch toward God's high calling, and where we remind each other that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'll be talking to you this week about several really interesting things, at least from my perspective. We want to talk about the Bible. Well, we always talk about the Bible, but a little different way we want to talk about the Bible. And then I want to encourage you to approach the Bible maybe in a little different way this year. We're going to talk a little bit more about the epiphany, the epiphany of Jesus or the revelation of Jesus and what that means and why it's significant and how we should not just take it lightly. It's not just about the story of wise men but it's about the revelation of Jesus, and we want to make sure we understand that and make some connections to how that fits into the broader biblical story because it matters. And last, we want to rehearse together this idea of covenant. And this idea of covenant, I think, is the single best image that the Bible gives us, metaphor that the Bible gives us, to understand the relationship between God and and his people between God and us as individuals. And we want to go through that a little bit using the wisdom of John Wesley. But we'll get to that in a minute. Let's start out with where we started out with. Let's start out with the Bible. Now, people think it's a little curious that I've been making a point of focusing our attention at church, where I'm the pastor. I'm Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. And I said to the congregation at the beginning of Advent, which is the beginning of the church year, when I wish them a happy new year in December, and everybody looks at me funny. Uh, It's all right. I'm kind of getting used to that. But I wished everybody a happy new year, and I said to them that I was convinced that God was calling us as a church to make this next year that began with the celebration of Advent, the observance of the Advent, Advent season, that God wanted us to focus on making this year the year of the Bible. And so we're going to talk about that at church, and I may bring up some things here on the program because I want to encourage you to make this your year of the Bible. Now, a lot of people listening are probably saying, well, the Bible's always been important. Yes, that's true. And you might say, well, and the Bible's always had a high place in my life. I believe the Bible. Well, great. I'm glad to hear that. I'm not saying that we haven't honored the Bible. I'm saying that not everyone is honoring the Bible today. So I had a conversation with someone recently, and this is an illustration of why I think we need to get serious and focus on this year of the Bible and and raise the Bible's central position in our understanding. Not to worship the Bible. Nope. The Bible just shows us who God is and how God expects us to get along with him. It's just the message of God to the people of God. I'm not wanting us to worship the Bible, but I had a conversation with someone, and it's the kind of thing that I think about from time to time, and this really crystallized it. So this person was telling me that someone in the family, the extended family of theirs, was all about multiple genders. There are 50 or more genders. I forget the number that was used in the conversation, but it was multiple, multiple, multiple genders. And this person and I were rather uh, agreeing and um, shaking our heads in wonder that people could, could make that statement because we, most of us, maybe you too, agree with the Bible when God says he created male and female. That I count two there, not 
50. And God said that very specifically and clearly in the opening words of Genesis when he created people, when he created male and female. And this friend of mine was saying that this family member was advocating for these multiple gender perspectives. And I, and I asked a question, and I wasn't trying to be rude or anything, and I'm not trying to be rude to you if you need to answer this question either, but I do think we need to be plain and, and come to grips with this. And I realize you can't ask this question in every conversation you have about gender. You have, to, you have to bring up things when you have the opportunity and when it fits. Just because someone needs to hear it doesn't mean they need to hear it at the certain time you want to say it or even that I want to say it. But anyway, that's wisdom, knowing when to say and what to say. But I said to this person, well, does your relative believe the Bible? Or, I clarified a little bit, what place does the Bible have in their lives? Is the Bible the authority in their lives? And this person wasn't quite sure about the answer to that. And I'm not sure if the, if the family member in question would have thought about it in those terms. I was assured that the family member in question was a Christian. Uh, that's good. But the next question when it comes to this multiple gender stuff is, does the Bible have authority in our lives? Does the Bible speak into our lives or do we speak into the Bible? Do we try to make the Bible say what we want it to say or do we allow it to say what God wants to say to us? So that's a, that's a simple illustration, example of why I think the Bible needs to be emphasized these days. And, and it's not that our church struggles with the gender issue, not at all. Uh, maybe a few people do, but by and large people see that for what it is because we look at the Bible and see what God says. But anyway, as you think about the Bible, and if you would consider to take the challenge of making this year the year of the Bible, how would you observe the year of the Bible? What would you do differently? Now, I don't know what your normal practice is. I don't know how much you read of the Bible or don't read of the Bible, but let me just give you a few ideas for what you might do to make this the year of the Bible for yourself. Well, first and the obvious one is to read or listen to the Bible. Now, I generally say read the Bible because that's what I generally do. I spend more time reading it than any other way. But when I say read the Bible, I all, always mean and try to always include listen to the Bible because listening to the Bible is a valuable exercise. I have found it very useful. It's a different experience when you listen to the Bible than when you read it. And whatever it takes for the Bible to get into us, into our hearts and minds, that's what we're talking about here. So maybe you want to listen, uh, read or listen to the Bible more this year, or maybe differently. For example, in your reading and or listening, maybe you want to explore a different translation. Now, there's nothing particularly sacred about any one translation over another. There are some differences, and there are some differences in approach that translators take toward translating the Bible. But by and large, we don't have bad English translations. They're a little different and for different reasons. And when we understand that, that helps. But by and large, you're not going to go wrong with any English translation except one. And I have been in recent days cautioning people about the Passion Translation. You may never have heard of that translation. I heard some serious things about that recently. And I believed them. I had confidence in the people I heard them from. And so I would caution you not to explore the Passion Translation. But there are a lot of other good ones. The most popular one these days is the New International Version, often referred to as the NIV. You might want to explore that one if you're not used to looking at that one. 
If you really are a King James person, um, that's fine. I'm not telling you not to be. But you might want to consider exploring the new King James Version. A little less stiff language, a little more accessible for us in our day because the way language has changed. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You're not betraying anybody. You're not betraying God if you try the new King James Version instead of the King James Whatever translation you're used to, consider a different one. Maybe the New Living Translation. A lot of people like it because it's very readable. If you've had trouble in the past and reading the Bible is difficult for you, try that one because it's very readable. I think you'd get a lot out of it. There are some other English translations out there. I regularly mention to people the idea of using the message as one English translation, and, and that's a good one. In recent times, in recent years, well, I've really thought about this for a very long time since our son was very young, but there are some Bibles that are printed. I call them comic book Bibles. I've been told by my friends, no, they're graphic novel type Bibles. Well, they are illustrated Bibles that tell you the Bible stories in a way that helps you follow the scope of the story from the beginning that God gives us in Genesis to the day of the Lord, the end of time in Revelation. So if you have challenges or don't think you have a good idea of the scope of the Bible, consider that. I think you'd really enjoy it. And and um, they're not just for kids, by the way. There are some that were written or created, drawn for children, and they're fine. I, I don't have any hes hesitation looking at any of them. There are some others that were drawn and designed more for adults. Maybe you want to get one of those. But go through it. Read through it. Read the story. Grasp the story. Now, it's going to be interpreted because the pictures are going to show things a certain way, and they're not going to use everything that's in the text of the Bible. So I don't say use those for serious study, but in terms of grasping the story of the Bible and beginning to understand some of the things and, and in what sequence they happened, I think it can be very useful. So check it out. And speaking of those kinds of Bibles, maybe what you want to do this year is focus on the Bible stories. And there are Bible storybooks. Most of the ones that I've seen are for children, but that's fine. No harm in that at all. Get a Bible storybook, and it'll just focus on various stories from different places in the Bible and help you get a grasp of that. So when people refer to something like David and Goliath, you will remember, oh, you read that story, and you have a little orientation to that. And there are other stories as well, some that you will have heard of, some maybe that you haven't heard of. But they, they give a good introduction, overview of the Bible through the stories. Another idea that I suggested to people is maybe they would want to focus on a book or books of the Bible. You know, the Bible being a collection of books, an anthology, means that there's a lot of books to choose from. And you can look in the Bible starting at the beginning all the way to the end and find different books. And, and I suggested that maybe instead of trying to read great quantities or read the Bible all the way through, which is fine. If you want to do that, do that, that you might focus on a book or books. I think we under, underestimate or underappreciate the value of focusing on a book or books and getting really familiar with those stories in that book. And if you want to do that, and if you're fairly new to this kind of idea, then I suggest you start with one of the Gospels, because it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that give us the story of Jesus. And so you get a much better grasp of Jesus, what he did, who he is, who he was, who he still is, all those kinds of things from the gospel. If you want to know which gospel to start with, well, you can start with any that, any that you're comfortable with. If you want to start with the shortest one, start with Mark. And it's a good one. It's very good. 
very insightful. You can read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting, and you can come back and read it again. And when I say focus on a book or books, I mean read it more than once. Think your way through it. You know, th follow the flow of it. Just turn the pages and remind yourself of what happens next and what happens after that and what happens next. And, and you'll kind of get the idea of how the story is all put together. And that can be very useful. Concentrate on a book or books. You might want to join a Bible study. In fact, let me put it this way. You do want to join a Bible study. If you haven't been a part of one, find a Bible study that will help you learn the Bible and understand it and put it in context of life. The best Bible studies help us understand what the Bible is saying to us and how it applies to life so that we can live our lives in a way that is beneficial to us and pleasing to God. Those are not exclusive ideas, by the way. When it's pleasing to God, it's beneficial to us. So, yes, join a Bible study. Now, if you can't find a Bible study for one reason or another, and I, I know it's not always easy to get into an existing Bible study group, you feel like you're the oddball, and yes, you might feel that way for a while, but a good Bible study will get you over that quickly and let you fit right in. So just press on and join that Bible study. Or if you really if you really are convinced you want to do a Bible study, but you don't want to join an existing one, start one. Find half a dozen people, 10 maybe, you don't need more than 10, that would like to study the Bible and, and start doing it. Form your own Bible study. Maybe, and I know this stretches a lot of people, but maybe what you would find useful is to spend some time this year memorizing the Bible. Yeah, just pick some important places like Psalm 23, if you haven't memorized that, and memorize that. Pick a translation you understand and, and will use and feel comfortable with. Doesn't matter which translation you memorize from. Whichever one is meaningful to you is the one will, that will help you most. So memorize the Bible. Now, I said to my church this last weekend, I said, I haven't decided for sure, I'm real close to deciding for sure, but haven't decided for sure, but I'm thinking of making this year a year I focus on the book of Revelation. Now, I don't recommend that for you or for most anybody. Very few people would I recommend that they focus on the book of Revelation for a lot of reasons, not because you can't understand or not because of, of, of my superiority or your inferiority, nothing, nothing at all like that. It's just that it may not be the most helpful and useful for you. And we have had a lot of misunderstanding about the book of Revelation. And if you bring a lot of misunderstanding and, and if you're fresh to the idea, it just may not be very helpful. And you may find yourself more confused and benefited. You see, I'll give you an example of what I mean. A lot of people think they have to figure out what the book of Revelation is saying, like it's a puzzle to, to solve. Well, I'm not so sure that's the way to look at the book of Revelation. I think we might be better off to look at it as a message to the church and how to live through the times we live through, those churches in those days and us today. And I also think that the one big thing that the book of Revelation communicates, and this is why I think we get scrambled and we don't focus on this. The book of Revelation isn't there to make you afraid or to make you in awe or wonder or anxious about the end of time. The book of Revelation is written in one part, at least, very significant part from my perspective, to let you know that no matter what happens, even the worst thing that you can imagine, if that happens, God is still there and with us. And God will not abandon us. He will see us through 
all these crazy times all the way to the end of time, to the day of the Lord. So anyway, make this year the year of the Bible. That's probably more than you thought you'd get about the Bible. But, you know, if we're going to have a rebirth of emphasis on the Bible, we need to, to spend some time thinking about the Bible and how we might approach it and what it might mean to us. So there you go. The year of the Bible. How are you going to make this year your year of the Bible? What might you do differently? Well, I also want to touch on this concept, this observance in the church year called Epiphany. It's a day, often, sometimes it's a Sunday in churches. It depends where they commemorate it. Some churches don't even talk about it at all. They connect the story of the wise men with the other nativity stories and and don't treat it separately. And I get that. We kind of condense them all down to have a nice nativity scene and a good story. But there's something very significant about what we call Epiphany, and it's the season where we're reminded that God revealed the coming of Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, historically, we know that God started forming a people from the tribe of Abraham. God and Abraham entered into covenant relationship. We read about that. We'll talk about covenant a little bit more a little bit later today. But we usually understand that the people of, of, of Abraham and his sons and their sons and all the way through were the people of God, Jewish people, Israelites, sometimes we say. Well, that's true. But never, ever did God mean to exclude other people from knowing him or declaring allegiance to him. He just used Abraham's people to be an example and, and a, an illustration of what it's like to get along with God and to have God as your friend in an effort to attract other people to serving God. In the temple in Jerusalem, for example, way back when it was first built, there included in the plans of that a court of the Gentiles to make room in the temple for Gentiles who wanted to seek God. Now, to be sure, there were other parts of the temple that, that only certain people could go to and were allowed into certain courts of the temple. That, that's pretty clear. But what's equally clear is that God did not exclude anyone because while he had a special place for Jewish men, Jewish women, the priests, the high priest, he had a special place for Gentiles where they could come to the temple of God to know God. So God has always wanted to reveal himself to the Gentiles. We see that over and over in the scriptures. Well, in the coming of the wise men and then their seeking and finding Jesus in Bethlehem, we are reminded that God came to reveal himself and he did it to those wise men. Now they came from a long way away. They saw some miraculous occurrence, miraculous to them, occurrence in the sky that we call a star. We don't know exactly what it was. We have some ideas, but it wasn't a nova or supernova, almost certainly, because the, Jew, the people in ancient times would not have recognized that as a sign indicating the birth of a king. It probably wasn't a star as we know stars, but it was a, an occurrence in the night sky that said to them, a king has been born. Well, there's some reasons why they might have thought that, but we'll leave those for another time and press on to the fact that they traveled then on the strength of that observation to Jerusalem to inquire about the birth of the king of the Jews. They found out there that it was to be born in Bethlehem, just a few miles down the road. And so, you know the story, they talked to Herod, and 
Herod schemed about what he would do in response to that king, and we're not going to get overly interested in that right now. That's a sad, terrible story, but it does point out the threat that Herod felt from a new king and how kings behave that way. But anyway, the wise men ended up in Bethlehem, and they found the newborn king. They bowed down and worshipped him. They gave him gifts. When it says they bowed down and worshipped him, in all likelihood, we don't know for sure, but in all likelihood, that meant they fell face down before the newborn, or by this time about two-year-old Jesus, and worshipped him, understanding that God had shown them that he was the king. And so they honored him in a way that's appropriate to kings. Well, they made their statement. God warned them in a dream not to go back and tell Herod what they had found. And they believed God and they went back a different way. Kind of fascinating how God used that dream to guide them. And so here they are Gentiles who came from a long way to meet and honor the newborn king, Jesus. And we call this epiphany, the revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles. Well, what else is going on in the story of the Bible? Well, I mentioned that from the beginning, God made a place in the temple for Gentiles. God never meant to be exclusive to the Jewish people. He only used them as an example to draw people to himself. He wasn't keeping other people away. We understand that the wise men, or magi if you prefer, came and they recognized Jesus as the king and honored him. Now let's go a little bit further in the story and connect another dot to, let, to help me help us understand that this idea of the revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles really mattered. So you probably remember a story in the Bible that is largely misunderstood, it seems to me, from my observation experience. Maybe you understand it just fine. I hope so. But there's an event in the life of Jesus where, that we usually call the cleansing of the temple. Jesus went into the temple and turned over tables and scattered money changers here and there and all that kind of stuff. And we make a lot of that sometimes in ways that I find rather kind of, uh, how should I say, disconcerting. I have heard people say, well, this just shows that Jesus was angry. Well, maybe I don't know about that the emotions of God are a little bit of a mystery to us and maybe something we should get to know better. But that's not the main reason for the story, to, not to show that Jesus got angry. That's not at all. When you read the story, you understand what Jesus was talking about. Now, a lot of people, they read the story and they, they think, well, he addressed his irritation at these people who were buying and selling in the temple, and so buying and selling in the temple must be wrong. Well, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea is a little different discussion, but that's not the main reason. I, I can't even find it as an identifiable reason that Jesus acted the way he did. He had something else in mind. We also know from history that there is no evidence that the people that were often called, usually called money changers that were there in the temple, were mistreating the people or ripping them off. I've heard people say, well, they were probably just misusing the people because they were charging high prices for these animals and they go on to other kinds of things. And, and Jesus didn't like the fact that they were being taken advantage of. Well, there's no evidence of that anywhere in history. 
In fact, the evidence that we have is that this was an accepted practice and a practice that was helpful to the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem. Because when pilgrims came to Jerusalem at Passover, and that's when Jesus entered the temple and cleansed it, as we say, they needed a, a perfect sacrifice to take to the altar to offer to God. When they had to travel great distances, it was difficult, maybe even impossible, for them to bring a perfect sacrifice because of the rigors of travel. So instead of trying to bring a sacrifice, there were sacrifices available and they could purchase a suitable animal for sacrifice and in that way fulfill their obligation to God by offering an appropriate, perfect sacrifice. Again, no evidence that we have indicates that that was an inappropriate practice or that people were being ripped off. It just seems to be a service that helped the faithful people honor God. So what is going on here? If it's not some of the things we usually hear, and I explained this to someone recently, and I think I messed up their whole understanding of this story. I didn't mean to. I meant to make it straight. But their reaction kind of made me think they were disappointed to hear a different point of view. But anyway, it's important for us to keep the sacred story straight, and I was, that's what I was trying to do. So here's the clue that really helps unlock our understanding of what Jesus was up to at the cleansing of the temple. As he was going through the temple and overturning the tables, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Let me read that again. It's important to get what he says here. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus here is making a statement that at first seems like, what in the world is he talking about? It doesn't seem to fit the context until you think about it a little bit further and begin to study it a little bit more focused and, and more intently. Jesus is quoting Jeremiah chapter 7 the prophet Jeremiah from the Hebrew Scriptures. And he says that his house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And that was true. That was absolutely true. The temple from its beginnings had a court of the Gentiles. So Jesus is recognizing that the temple, and he was there in the temple in Jerusalem at that time, was supposed to be a place that anybody could come and know God. Everybody come, find out about, meet God, give allegiance to God. That's why it had a court of the Gentiles. So there was a place for everyone and anyone to come and know God. He also says you've turned it into a den of robbers. Again, quoting Jeremiah chapter 7. Now what does it mean, a den of robbers? Well, what he is saying there is that by you setting up here in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, you have displaced people who want to come and know God. You have robbed them of their opportunity to come and know God. See, by putting their marketplace, if, if you will, there in the court of the Gentiles, they had crowded out the space for Gentiles to come and know God. And Jesus says, no, no, no way. My house is a house of prayer for all the nations. In other words, Everybody is welcome here, and you didn't make sure there's space for them, but instead you've turned it into a den of robbers. You've crowded them out by putting yourselves here, and you're robbing them of their opportunity to know God. 
See, this idea of, of revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles was no small matter. It was no small matter to God when he first formed his people from the tribe of Abraham. He always wanted people to come and to know him. He wanted to use those people, Israel, as an example of how wonderful it is to follow the one true God. Well, you know, the story of Israel often followed other gods because instead of wanting to be an example of what it means to follow the one true God, they wanted to be like everybody else. And so they fell into idol worship, got themselves in big trouble. And Jesus here is trying to remind everyone, and especially us, because many of us today, many of us listening to this program, including myself, we're Gentiles. We are the people Jesus was desperate to make room for. And I think it's so enlightening and so heartening to see how much God cared that everybody come to know him and to give allegiance to him. We often have used the phrase, whosoever will may come, and that's exactly right. God didn't limit it to a few select people. God said, I want everyone to know me. And I'm going to reinforce that by making sure in my temple there is a place for them to know me. Particularly important in ancient times because they went to the temple of the various gods to meet the God there. And so people would have understood that importance of sacred space and they would have gone to worship God there in the temple. And that's why it's important for us to remember the revelation of Jesus to the Gentiles. That's what is represented by the arrival of the wise men, Gentiles from far away in the east, who saw what they described, at least in our English translations, as a star, some phenomena in the sky. And they followed that phenomena to Jerusalem and Bethlehem and bowed down to worship the newborn king or really by now about two-year-old king, Jesus. Well, that gets us started, and we're going to plunge in a little bit more. We're going to talk about covenant in our next section, so don't go away. Covenant's coming. Join us then. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at CofixRx.com.
America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we've been challenging each other for a while now to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And yes, I know it's sometimes talked about in different ways, and it's more than that, but I have found that simple definition, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, to be a very helpful definition. It helps me, reminds me that I can trust God. I hope it'll remind you that you can too. And it not only reminds me that I can, it reminds me that I need to and I must. And it helps me actually do it, actually trust God. A novel idea, don't you think? Well, you probably don't because you're probably way ahead of me and I'm glad for that. But we're plunging in today and we've been talking about some important things. We've been talking about the Bible and it's important. And we've been talking about the idea of epiphany, and that's important. And now we're going to talk about the idea of covenant, and it is important. As I said earlier, I think it's the best metaphor, the best way that God has chosen to use to help us understand our relationship with him. And it helps me enormously, and I hope it helps you. And I, I as I thought about covenant and first learned this some years ago, the more I think about it, the more I notice it, the more I see it popping up all over the Bible. And so I want to help connect some dots today for you with this idea of covenant. And I'm going to use the idea that John Wesley started years ago. John Wesley lived in the 1700s, and you may remember he started the Methodist movement. He didn't start the Methodist denomination. He was Anglican all of his life, an Anglican minister. But he started the Methodist movement that was characterized by heart purity and life purity, doing the right things, living right, and by careful study of the Bible. Well, he developed this idea of a covenant service to begin the new year every year, and he urged his people to conduct and participate in a covenant service. It's come down to us, and it's called the John Wesley Covenant Service. And at our church, we've been doing that on the first Sunday of the year, well, for several years now. Now, I took that service that John Wesley developed. It's quite long, nothing wrong with it, but I took it and, and simplified it a little bit. It didn't work for us in exactly the way he had written it because he wrote it for his times. And that's been a day or two ago. I took the language that he used and the ideas and I simplified the language and updated it because language has changed a lot. I didn't, and I tried very hard not to change the meaning, but just to make it easier for us in our time in the way we use language. And so then we incorporate that into our weekend service, our Sunday morning service every year. We did that this year on the la on this last Sunday. Uh, it was actually, we did it on January 1st, the way it worked out. So I want to talk about covenant a little bit, and then I want to take you through what we have used as the John Wesley Covenant Service. If you look for it, you'll find a lot of people have adapted this service and I don't know, don't know whether anybody's wrong or right about it. I just know this is what we've done. 
And if it's helpful for you, and I hope it is, then use it for that. Let's start out by talking about covenant. And I have always found it difficult, it seems to me, to, to help people understand the idea of covenant. It's not something familiar in the context of our lives. We don't enter into covenants in the way the Bible is referring to them or the ancient people practiced it. The closest we come is a marriage, and that's not what they did in those days. Their covenants were between heads of households, or perhaps you'd call them tribes, or you might call them extended families. But the heads of these tribes would decide that they wanted to enter into covenant with each other, and that would join the two tribes together in a way that was unique to those times. They would share their assets, the things they had going for them, and they would share their responsibilities, their debts, and they would satisfy them together so that they were no longer a separate or a couple of separate tribes, but they formed a new entity by virtue of covenant. So I came across this definition of covenant, and it gives us an idea when we kind of break it down to help us understand. So first of all, covenant is an agreement. It's an agreement between two parties, and in the Bible, it's usually two men as heads of households. It's an agreement between those two parties, and the covenant creates, formalizes, and governs that relationship. So the covenant creates that relationship where there wasn't a relationship before. Maybe they were friends, but it's a different relationship now. They are joined together by virtue of covenant. And so that agreement, that covenant exchange, creates the relationship. It also formalizes the relationship because now they each know what to expect of the other and what's expected of them by the other partner in the covenant partnership. So it creates the covenant, it formalizes the covenant, and it governs the covenant. So this new relationship that has been created is formalized by a covenant ceremony and a covenant agreement, and then that agreement governs or guides, directs the relationship going forward. It's the boundaries for the relationship. It's the expectations. It's the agreements that were part of the covenant formation. We call the formalizing of or the creating of the covenant our relationship with God when we agree to give allegiance to Jesus. So that becomes a creation of our covenant relationship with him, and he invites us into that by grace. It formalizes the relationship because there wasn't one before, but now we know what we can expect of God, and God knows what he can expect of us, or maybe a different way, what he does expect of us. We like the promises God makes, and that's part of covenant when he makes promises to do certain things, and he expects us to keep our promises when we promise to follow him faithfully. And so all of this guides the relationship and governs how things work out. And the Bible is the guide that we use that has formalized the relationship in terms of our agreements with God and now governs our behavior with God going forward and helps us understand what we can expect God to do. Well, this idea of covenant, as I have come to think of it, really starts in my understanding of how we get along with God and how God has formed a people in Genesis chapter 15. It's really quite a remarkable occurrence that takes place there. God comes along and promises Abraham, who has no children, that he will give him a son and many children. And Abraham believes him. And God, in that 
beginning exchange invites Abraham into a covenant relationship. So Abraham agrees, and Abraham gets the animals. Their animals were sacrificed as part of the covenant uh, ceremony. And they proceed through that. We don't have all the details of it. We've learned the details from other sources. We think the Bible didn't give us all those details because they were understood by the people. And so the Bible gave us what we need to, to know. And so a fascinating occurrence takes place during this covenant formation. God, calling Abraham to form covenant, instructs Abraham to sacrifice the animals. And there's a point in the covenant ceremony when the two covenant partners would walk between those sacrificed animals and make promises and declare the consequences if they fail to live up to the covenant. Old Testament often refers to them as blessings or curses. There are benefits to this and there are curses to that. Benefits if you do right, judgments if you do wrong. And they declare themselves to the other people. And in no small measure, they say to each other that if I violate my part of the covenant, I'm worthy of death. That's how seriously they took that. Well, just at the point that the two covenant partners, in this case it would be God and Abraham, which is quite remarkable, just at the point that they would walk between the sacrificed animals, <laughs> I don't mean this in a, 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 an unreverent way or an irreverent way, but God takes Abraham and he puts him over on the shelf. A little bit, you may have used an elf in, on the shelf this past Christmas season. Well, God puts Abraham over to the side and he, he's not knocked out, but he's unable to participate in the ceremony. He just sits there and he's an observer. Well, two entities walk between the sacrificed animals, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Well, two people formed a covenant relationship, and this was a covenant initiated by God. So one of those has to be God, and God could not be seen by Abraham or he would die. So God had to use a representation of himself. So one of those is representing God, and the other is representing, yes, you guess it, Abraham. But by God providing both representatives in the covenant ceremony, God is taking responsibility in a really serious way for the terms and the keeping of the terms of the covenant. So how that plays out is when Jesus came and he, as the Bible says, became sin for us, when he, as the Bible says, died for the sins of the world, all of the violations of covenant that we participated in, and that would mean that we had a penalty, a serious penalty, a penalty of death, we were responsible for that, and we should die. But Jesus stepped in, even as far back as that first covenant, when God took responsibility for both sides of that covenant, Jesus stepped in then centuries later and became the sacrifice that made those wrongs right, that satisfied the justice of God, that atoned for our sins. It's fascinating to me how that going back to the covenant ceremony, God stepped in and said, essentially, he didn't say it out loud to anybody that I'm aware of. Essentially, he said, I know you guys are going to mess up. I know you are. It's just going to happen. So I'm going to make sure there's a way to satisfy justice and provide mercy for you. Now, that really catches my attention because that's really covenant language that God is saying there because there are 
There are consequences to our misbehavior. There is justice that's required. But God, being a God of mercy, from the beginning of that covenant formation said, I'm going to take care of that so I can be merciful to you. Well, we hear over and over today. You may have heard it a dozen times in the last week. Sometimes we hear it more than others. But if we've heard it once, we've heard it a bunch of times that someone will say, I want justice or I demand justice for, and then they'll fill in the blank of a person or an event, and they want justice. They say there has been a wrong committed here, and I want that wrong made right. I want justice. And to be honest, you have wanted justice in a few cases too, haven't you? Well, I have too. If we've suffered a wrong, when someone has failed to keep a promise or betrayed us or stolen from us or whatever it might be, when they have committed an offense, then we, we want justice. We want that wrong made right. We want justice. The curious thing about this concept of justice isn't that it's not appropriate. It's, of course it's appropriate. God understands justice and that the wrongs need to be made right. It's not that we misunderstand the need for justice. It's that we miss this. We want justice when it comes to the other person getting there, what we might say, just desserts. But when it comes to us and the things that we've done wrong, what do we want? We want, yes, you guessed it, we want mercy. See, we don't want justice when it would fall on us. We want mercy. And so God, by taking both sides of that covenant ceremony, by by fulfilling both roles, both God's role and Abraham's role, God is saying, I recognize the problem in advance. And in advance, I'm going to tell you that I will make sure there is a way to bring justice to the world. Jesus became sin for us. I will make sure that justice is served because justice is necessary. But I will also make a provision for mercy. And so all of the justice fell on Jesus, and we are benefits of the mercies of God in that he takes away our sins so we don't bear the consequences of that. That's a beginning understanding of justice and mercy as it relates to covenant. And I think that's very important. But now, I want to go through this covenant service and invite you to participate in whatever way you find helpful. You may need to... to think about this. And if you're listening live on the radio, you may need to get the podcast later and listen to it again. I encourage you to do that. If you're listening to the podcast now, maybe you want to rewind and, and re-listen a few times. I'm going to go through this uh, fairly slowly, but not too slowly. But I want you to consider joining God in covenant relationship. So in Wesley's covenant service, he begins with, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant which will never be forgotten. And that's from Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 5. Let us pray. Almighty God, you know our hearts, our desires, and all our secrets. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And now John Wesley gives us some important words for us to hear. He says, 
Fix these three principles in your hearts. One, things eternal are much more substantial than things temporal. Now, we don't use that word temporal often, but it's a good one, and it fits here. What that means is that things that are going to last forever are more substantial than things that aren't going to last forever. So fix your hearts on these principles. Things eternal are much more substantial than things temporal. Number two, things not seen are as certain as the things that are seen. And I would add here, a lot of times people only believe what they see and they don't want to believe what God says is real, even though they can't see it. We need to believe that. Number three, your choice determines your eternal destiny. Choose Christ and his ways and you are blessed forever. Refuse and you are undone forever. Will you now trust Christ? If so, he gives you these assurances. First, you have the assurance that God sent Christ into the world to save sinners, redeeming and reconciling the world to himself. Second, you have the assurance. Now notice that he says that in every instance, the first, second, third. And what that means, you have this covenant promise from God. You have the assurance, this covenant promise, that God commands us to believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And third, you have the assurance that Jesus is the foundation that can be trusted. God says in his word, I'm setting a stone in Zion, a cornerstone in the place of honor. Whoever trusts in this stone as a foundation will never have cause to regret it. So now, give yourselves to the Lord. Let him run your life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full-time into God's way of doing things. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. With the psalmist we say, Lord, I am yours. I reverence you. I dedicate myself to your service. And now John Wesley invites us to make this commitment by this solemn covenant. And just before we make that commitment, he says, search your hearts. Have you already or can you now freely make these commitments to God in Christ? First, give up all known sin. And I need to add here that that's very important that we think about this as known sin. Some people beat themselves up for things they don't know about. Listen, you deal with the things that you know need to be made right in your life. Don't worry about the other things. God will show you what you need to know when you need to know it. First, give up all known sin. Second, take this covenant seriously. Third, embrace this covenant with God and depend upon his promise of grace and strength to enable you to keep your commitments. Do not trust your own strength. Rely on his strength. Will you allow me to add here, that's what we mean by grace. That you allow God to give you the strength to do what he calls you to give. It's, it's a gift of grace. Rely on his strength. Fourth, resolve to be faithful. Steadfastly determine that by grace you will never turn away from the Lord. Last, 
as if the Lord were visibly present before your eyes. Bow and open your hearts to the Lord. And then Mr. Wesley invites us to pray together. Most holy God, please accept me as I bow before you. I have fallen from you by my sin. But you graciously promised mercy to me in Christ if I will turn to you with all my heart. Therefore, I now come and submit myself to your mercy. I put away my sins and from the bottom of my heart renounce them all. I firmly covenant with you not to allow myself in any known sin. It is the firm, pardon me, I firmly covenant with you not to allow myself in any known sin. It is the firm revolution of my heart to forsake all that is dear to me in this world rather than turn from you to the ways of sin. I will guard against all temptations, whether of prosperity or adversity, lest they should turn my heart from you. I call heaven and earth to record this day that I do hereby solemnly take you as my Lord and my God. I give myself body and soul to your service, promising and vowing to serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of my life. I do hereby solemnly join myself as a covenant partner to Jesus. I do hereby covenant with you to accept the circumstances of life and overcome them by your grace. I am convinced that neither life nor death shall separate me from you. Now, Almighty God, Searcher of hearts, you know that I make this covenant with you this day without any known deceit or reservation. Reveal any flaw or falsehood in me and help me to put it right. Now, glory be to you, my God and Father. Glory be to you, my God, the Son. You have become my Savior and Redeemer. Glory be to you, my God, the Holy Spirit, who by your almighty power have turned my heart from sin to God. O eternal God, omnipotent Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are now my covenant friend, and I, through your infinite grace, have become your covenant servant. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Well, that well sums up what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to declare allegiance to Jesus. It really sums up that we give ourselves to him in covenant relationship and we allow him to have expectations of us and we agree to live in such a way as to fulfill those expectations. We don't do it on our own strength. We have to rely on him. That's what it says in there. But we firmly commit 
to following him and to putting away anything that keeps us from following him and allowing him to renew our hearts, to change our lives. Now, to be sure, you will not want to enter into covenant with God if you don't want to change your life. That's just not the way it works. A covenant relationship is a change of life. And if you want to just go on like you're going on and expect God to think you're just fine because you're doing whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, then that's not covenant. Covenant is a blending, a joining together of hearts and lives. And when we join with God, we agree to walk in his way. And he agrees to be with us, to give us strength for the journey, to give us grace when we need it, to help us when we face adversity. And he does do that. You see, the promises that God makes are not just empty promises. He means them. And when God makes a promise to his people, he does not fail to keep that promise because what? That's a part of his covenant commitment to us is his promises because he makes promises to us as our covenant partner. So I encourage you this week, the days ahead, to begin to think of yourself as a covenant partner with God. Now, not in the sense that hey, look at me, I've got God as my friend, Uh, that would be arrogance. It's the sense that, yes, God is with me. God is for me. God is going to help me. I may still have to face some adversity, but by the grace of God, I can and I will, and I will come out ahead because of God and what he does. Well, covenant partners, welcome to the covenant. We're going to talk some more about some of the things. We're going to follow the life of Jesus as we plunge ahead through the year. I invite you to join us again next week on Faith Is, where we develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens.